Good morning. In today's headlines, updates and former President Trump's legal battles. We take a look at the 2024 candidates Georgia, New York and January 6th cases. A former Proud Boys leader is sentenced to over two decades in prison. Do J6 convictions bring closure or can they create martyrs? Entity speaks with a former Intel official. Congressman James Comer is making a list and checking it twice of subpoenas, that is. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and others may find themselves in the hot seat. More than a dozen Republican senators are working to stop President Biden's new student loan forgiveness plan. They're calling it irresponsible and unfair. And stay tuned for our Miss NTD segment. A Northwestern University PhD student tells what brought her to the stage and her insights on beauty and righteousness. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, September 6th. And you know, Evelyn, I went to Northwestern. That's great. That's great that you could find an instant connection there. Yeah, beautiful scenery there right on the lake. I really haven't been there, but uh, I'm excited to hear her story, really. Yes. But first, we're starting off with updates in former President Trump's ongoing legal battles heading into the 2024 presidential election. All 19 defendants in Georgia's 2020 election case have pleaded not guilty to the charges against them and waived their formal arraignments. 41 charges in total have been filed against the defendants. They include violation of Georgia's RICO Act, a law traditionally used to target organized crime, as well as impersonating a public officer and forgery. A Fulton County judge will hold a hearing today to address scheduling issues surrounding the case. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more about what's going on in Georgia. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows was among the final defendants to enter a plea Tuesday, alongside former Trump attorney John Eastman and former Coffee County election official Misty Hampton. Meadows and four others have asked for their cases to be removed to federal court. The indictment alleges Meadows took part in a racketeering conspiracy and was coordinating and attending meetings to strategize ways to disrupt and delay the counting of electoral votes. The former White House official's legal team argues the actions he'd been indicted for were performed in his capacity as a federal official and asked for the case to be dismissed or tried in a federal court. Two defendants, Kenneth Cheesebro and Sidney Powell, asked to have their cases separated from the others and demanded a speedy trial. Cheesebro's trial date was set for October 23rd. District Attorney Fonnie Willis wants to try all defendants at once and reacted by filing a motion to move her March 2024 request for a trial to that date. Trump has asked to have his case severed from those seeking a speedy trial. His attorney says it's not enough time to prepare, would interfere with his prior commitments in federal court, and waive certain rules for prosecutors. Trump's team is hoping for a trial date after the 2024 election. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And with Trump facing four indictments and having waived his arraignment in Georgia today, we get a recap of all that's happened to Trump over the years as president and beyond. We're going to speak to someone who has been following developments in this area very closely. Lee Smith, author of The Plot Against the President, joins us live. Good morning, Lee. Hey, good morning, Kevin, and thank you so much for having me on this morning. Yes, can you give us a big picture here of what's been happening to Trump when he first ran for president up until the present moment? Yeah, I mean, first, first I wanted to say, I mean, you have to, you have to admire the different legal teams here, not just President uh, Donald Trump's, but 
but uh, lawyers for the other defendants who are trying to come up with different legal defenses for, I mean, what is basically turned into a, uh, not just a weaponized justice system, but a pathologically insane justice system. If you look at uh, not, 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 just, uh, not, not just the 19 different defendants in, uh, in Fulton County right now, but if you look at the 22, the 22 years uh, to which uh, Enrique Ontario has been sentenced for January 6th related issues, and he wasn't even in Washington, D.C. at the time. So this is how far out of control our justice system has spun since uh, since the beginning of 2016, when the plot against Donald Trump began. So we're uh, we're just about uh, we're just about eight years into the utter uh, destruction of our justice system. What began with trying to frame Donald Trump as a Russian spy is now I don't I, I don't know if it's culminating or this is a midway point. We'll soon see. But is looking to, uh, to to imprison Donald Trump. Right, and there was some concerns of communication between Smith and Fannie Willis and Trump's lawyer, John Lauro. He was even saying that there's probably going to be this, you know, massive, sophisticated defense there was going to try to invoke presidential immunity. So where where do we stand here? I mean, Trump has been, he's been, yeah. uh, you know, he, he's, been in he's, been, he's been impeached twice. No convictions there. No convictions yet. And there is some talk that there may be a secret grand jury in Washington right now to bring charges against the former president for his actions during January 6th, but nothing yet. So what can you tell us here? Well, what I can tell you is that w what we're already looking at is a compromised election. Uh, and certainly Trump supporters across the country already recognize this. Now, they'll no doubt go out and vote for Donald Trump in November 2024. But if Donald Trump loses, um, they will recognize that this election interference campaign was unlike 2016 and unlike 2020, this is public, right? 2016 was Russiagate, 2020 was shielding Joe Biden, and that started with the impeachment in, uh, in the winter of 2019, rolled through uh, blocking Hunter Biden's laptop. But right now, this is all out in the open. So everyone who's thinking, even people who aren't thinking of voting for Donald Trump, are seeing election interference. I mean, we're seeing four different cases, two federal, two state, being brought against Donald Trump. So this is obvious election interference. So if Donald Trump loses uh, in, in November 2024, there is no Trump supporter who will accept this election as legitimate. That's just the way it is. This is the way the Justice Department has been pushing us for eight years, and that's where it is. Of course, because they have smear Donald Trump with these ridiculous charges, should Tr Donald Trump win, should he uh, push past all of the election regularities we can count on seeing heading into 2024, then the half of the country that's going to wind up voting for Joe Biden will not accept Donald Trump's election either. The Department of Justice, and my, my big question, Kevin, I'm sure a lot of your, your viewers as well is, ha has the Justice Department, has Joe Biden uh, and the White House, have they designed this intentionally to push America toward conflict or are they just very ignorant people and they don't really see the way this is going? They don't see the way that they've poisoned the country and the way that they've pushed the country um, toward the abyss and they've driven Americans against each other and have created uh, created an atmosphere where um, where conflict is almost certain. So I, I, to me, that's the big picture. It, 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 it's extremely dangerous. We're heading into an election that is already compromised, that one half of the country will not accept, no matter what happens.
right? Well, Trump Unless has said the Department that this Justice, is election you know, interference. And the, yeah. 100%. And I mean, I, you know, I even remember being at the Stop the Steal rally, and of course, a lot of Republicans were there concerned about the election, but, you know, some Democrats, too, saying they got multiple mail-in ballots when they never requested right. anything. So this is really important stuff. <coughs> Lee Smith, author of The Plot Against the President, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kevin. Have a great day. And in another case against Trump, New York Attorney General Letitia James has just asked to sanction the former president and some of his family members. She says they keep raising arguments that have been rejected by the court and wants them fined $20,000 for wasting time. A federal appeals court has blocked special counsel Jack Smith's team from getting the seized phone records of Congressman Scott Perry. The Trump ally has been fighting to keep the records protected. The FBI seized Perry's phone a day after Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence was raided last year. Yesterday's ruling vacates parts of a lower court ruling. It gave Smith's prosecutors access to around 2,000 records from Perry's phone. The three-judge panel sent the case back to a district court. The court ruling remains under seal, but a summary judgment says it was to apply the correct standard to some of Perry's records. Former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio <coughs> excuse me, was sentenced to 22 years in prison yesterday for his alleged role in the January 6th Capitol breach. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the longest sentence so far in the case and analysis. Tario had been convicted of seditious conspiracy for his role in planning the Capitol breach that allegedly sought to stop Congress from certifying the 2020 election results. Tario's lawyer said his absence from Washington on January 6th meant that he had no direct influence on the breach. Prosecutors had asked the judge to sentence Tario to 33 years behind bars, saying he helped direct the breach from Baltimore. His attorneys had asked for no more than 15 years. Former intel official at the office of the Director of National Intelligence, Thomas Speziali, discusses the case. The most important thing here is, is people need to be thinking about why 250 plus thousand people even showed up that day. According to Speziali, the Capitol breach wasn't really about Trump. He says other concerns motivated people. A loss of faith in their government, uh, you know, the, the fake dossier hoax, the national security investigation into the Trump campaign, which has now been also determined to be a hoax. The senior leadership of the FBI uh, doing things that were unconstitutional. The former intel official believes the convictions and sentences will backfire. These people are going to become martyred in the eyes of, you know, 51% of the American people. For domestic tranquility, it's never good to have martyrs of this scale, especially when all of the Things that brought them out there on January 6th have now been proven to be true. More than 1,100 people have been arrested on charges related to the Capitol breach. At least 630 have pleaded guilty, and at least 110 have been convicted at trial. Tario's lawyers say he will appeal. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A jury was selected for Peter Navarro's contempt of Congress trial yesterday. The former Trump White House trade advisor is charged with two counts of contempt of Congress. That's for ignoring a subpoena from the House January 6th committee who asked for documents and testimony. It's expected to be a speedy trial. Both sides are expected to give opening statements today. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Navarro's case. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta questioned potential jurors for over seven hours in court on Tuesday. 
They were asked if they'd heard about the case or talked about it on social media, and if they had any reservations or concerns about avoiding media during the trial, especially online content regarding the case. They were also asked if they'd read anything about the January 6th committee, and if anyone close to them had worked in the legal profession. Fourteen jurors were selected for the trial. Presumably two will be alternates. Prosecutors plan to call just three witnesses, all of them former January 6th panel staffers. They're likely to testify about the panel's protocols and their interactions with Navarro over the subpoenas. Meanwhile, Navarro's attorney Stanley Woodward said he plans to call only one witness, a special agent with the FBI. Navarro told the Epic Times outside the courtroom, the Justice Department doesn't want to offer him a plea bargain and to let the process play out. He's already signaled that if convicted, he'll ask higher courts to examine the legal questions brought up by his case about executive privilege and congressional subpoena authority. He posted on X after the jury was impaneled. Tomorrow, the trial begins. It's not me, but the Constitution on trial. The case could help draw clearer lines around a former president's power to assert privilege over aides facing demands from Congress for testimony and documents. Judge Mehta said the trial will last until this Friday. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. After the break, Representative James Comer issuing subpoenas. He says DHS employees stop the Secret Service from sharing information with Congress. And GOP senators move to block President Biden's new proposal for student loan forgiveness. Senator Bill Cassidy calls the proposal unfair and irresponsible. Welcome back. Congressman James Comer was busy issuing subpoenas yesterday. Those receiving them include Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, other DHS employees, as well as Secret Service staffers. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the case. The move by Comer comes after DHS employees allegedly prevented the Secret Service from sharing information with Congress. The subject of the info was alleged misconduct in the criminal investigation into Hunter Biden. Comer's subpoenas forced Mayorkas to provide all documents and communications about the Biden transition team, allegedly being tipped off about a planned Hunter Biden interview in December 2020. Comer discussed the case on Fox News. We've been obstructed at every turn, not only by the Biden attorneys, but also by the Department of Justice, by Homeland Security now. A House Oversight Committee press release states that in June 2023, Chairman Comer wrote to the Secret Service director requesting the agency make all those Secret Service employees involved available for transcribed interviews. That means those who allegedly received the December 2020 tip-off from the FBI and all Secret Service employees who may have passed this information along to the Biden family or presidential transition team. The press release further states that the Secret Service wanted to provide a more detailed response but that DHS blocked the agency from doing so. Comer says the DOJ initiated the Biden family cover-up and that the DHS under Mayorkas is complicit in it. Comer says the evidence in the case is overwhelming. And the fact that the White House announced today they're creating a war room uh, as opposed to cooperating with our investigation, if Joe Biden's completely innocent, then why won't they just comply with our request? The House committee chairman stated that the American people deserve transparency, not obstruction. An unnamed DHS official told The Hill, quote, The claim that we obstructed or withheld a response is categorically false, and these subpoenas are entirely without basis. 
Daniel Monahan, NTD News. President Biden's new student loan bailout plan is ruffling feathers in the Senate. More than a dozen GOP senators are working to oppose the plan, which Republicans say puts unjust financial pressure on those with no student debt. NTD's Cost Timonez tells us more. Republican Senator Bill Cassidy is backing a resolution under the Congressional Review Act, or CRA disapproving of President Joe Biden's proposed income-driven repayment college bailout plan. He is joined by 16 other Republican senators. Cassidy says Biden's latest proposal shifts the burden from those who chose to take out loans to those who decided not to go to college or pay their way, as well as those who responsibly paid off their loans. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona calls the proposal another huge step forward in President Biden's tireless efforts to fix the broken student loan system, referring to it as the most affordable repayment plan in history. Senator Cassidy says the GOP resolution would protect the majority of Americans with no student debt, who would be forced to shoulder the burden of what he called an irresponsible and unfair policy. Biden's recent attempt the Saving a Valuable Education, or SAFE Act, would provide forgiveness for nearly $600 million of student loan debt. The proposal is Biden's second attempt after a Supreme Court decision in June deemed Biden's first proposal unconstitutional. For the resolution to stop the SAFE Act to pass, simple majorities in both the Senate and the House to vote for the CRA are required. Costa Menes, NTD News. Now over to the Hawaii wildfires. The family of a victim is suing the state and the county of Maui over the disaster. This is the first lawsuit stemming from the wildfires to be lodged against the state. Here are the details. The father of a wildfire victim in Hawaii filed a lawsuit this Monday in Hawaii State Court. Harold Wells's 57-year-old daughter, Rebecca Rance, is among at least 115 people who died in the blazes last month. The lawsuit accuses the state of Hawaii and the county of Maui of gross negligence leading to the wildfires. Wells argued that the government knew about the risk of wildfires, but didn't take measures that would have reduced the risk, such as proper vegetation and electrical grid management. The lawsuit also names the state's electric utility, Hawaiian Electric, and a major landowner on the island, Bishop Estate. Hawaiian Electric is already facing a dozen civil lawsuits over the wildfires. Wells said in the lawsuit that large landowners, including the state, county, and Bishop Estate, had a duty to reduce wildfire risk by regularly clearing dry vegetation in the area, but they failed to do so. The suit also says Hawaiian Electric failed to de-energize its electrical equipment during hurricane-force winds, sparking the fires. Hawaiian Electric earlier rejected this allegation, saying they did de-energize the power lines after a morning fire that was extinguished. Hawaiian Electric has also been sued by its investors. They allege they suffered significant losses and damages due to the company's failure to disclose important information about its wildfire prevention and safety protocols. A Washington state deputy had a close call with a fiery demise in a recent Oregon road fire. A body camera captured the compelling footage. Spokane County Deputy Britton Morgan was out warning residents to evacuate during the recent Oregon road fire. Suddenly, he was surrounded by flames and in grave danger. He drove his vehicle in a literal race for his life. Upon making it out safely, he stayed and stopped others from driving down the road. 
The fire is now contained, but left in its wake one dead, 120 homes destroyed, and about 11,000 acres burned. And now to some weather news. The National Hurricane Center is warning that Tropical Storm Lee is likely to intensify into an extremely dangerous hurricane by this weekend. Lee formed over the Atlantic yesterday morning and could develop into a hurricane by Wednesday, then becoming a major Category 3 storm or stronger by Friday. Forecasts show the, the impact of the storm could be felt on the leeward islands of the Caribbean over the weekend, with wind speeds reaching 150 miles per hour on Sunday evening. Other affected regions could also include and pro, include Puerto Rico and Hispaniola. It's currently unclear whether the storm will hit the U.S., but dangerous surf and rip currents could threaten the East Coast regardless. The National Hurricane Center says as the storm is moving through extremely warm waters and is expected to strengthen rapidly, Lee comes in the wake of Hurricane Idalia, which struck the southeast U.S. last week, leaving at least two people dead. The peak of hurricane season falls on Sunday, September 10th. Everyone definitely be careful out there. Yeah, for sure. And like mentioned, some say it's still a little bit too early to worry that much because of the question where it will make landfall, but still yeah. be prepared. And you just see that trajectory heading straight towards Florida and Georgia. And coming up, the U.S. warns North Korea against supplying Russia with weapons. We'll have that story and more for you after the break. All right, sorry for that little mishap there. Hey, it happens. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Kyiv and is meeting with Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba. The meeting is a gesture of support for Ukraine as its three-month-old counteroffensive against Russian forces grinds on with only small gains. During his two-day visit, Blinken is likely to announce a new aid package worth more than a billion dollars. Blinken is the first top U.S. officials to visit Kyiv since the counteroffensive began in early June. He's expected to meet President Zelensky after his meeting with Foreign Minister Kuleba. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says Russia and North Korea are currently discussing an arms deal. He warns North Korea against supplying Russia with weapons to use in the war in Ukraine. Providing weapons to Russia for use on the battlefield to attack grain silos and the heating infrastructure of major cities as we head into winter uh, to try to conquer territory that belongs to another sovereign nation. This is not going to reflect well on North Korea, and they will pay a price for this uh, in the international community. The U.S. says North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is planning to meet President Putin later this month to discuss weapon supplies to Russia. The Kremlin said yesterday it had nothing to say about U.S. statements on the planned trip. Sullivan says the U.S. will continue to call on North Korea to abide by its public commitments not to supply weapons to Russia. The U.S. in August imposed sanctions on three entities it accused of being tied to arms deals between North Korea and Russia. And now we want to get to some short headlines from around the world. Many in India are wondering if the government will drop its official use of the English name India. This after India's president referred to herself as the president of Bharat in a G20 dinner invitation instead of president of India. India is also called Bharat, Bharata and Hindustan in Indian languages. 
cleanup is underway after severe rainstorms triggered flooding in parts of Greece, Turkey and Bulgaria. At least nine people died. In Istanbul, around a dozen people had to be rescued after being stranded inside a library. On the Greek island of Skiatos, tourists were seen dining in a flooded restaurant. Over 20 people are dead after a storm battered southern Brazil. 15 of the deaths occurred in one house. The cyclone has flooded, flooded homes and streets, swelled rivers, and inundated crops. The hardest-hit state recorded over 1,600 people made homeless since Monday night. The UK announced today it will declare Russia's Wagner mercenary group a banned terrorist organization. It says the group remains a threat to global security even after the death of its leader Yevgeny Prigozhin. The designation, once approved by lawmakers, will bar membership in or support for Wagner. And our hearts go out to the victims in Brazil. I think we're thinking the same thing. So many storms these days, yeah. Yes. And there's a lot of influence from, of course, the British colonialization in India, thus giving rise to, you know, this discussion. Yeah, very interesting topic there. Good to look into that. Yeah, they're looking for a name change. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we're heading into break now. Store owners in California defend their shop from a would-be thief, striking the suspect with their fists and a bat. We'll have details on this and more when we come back. The impeachment trial for Texas Attorney General Kim Paxton is underway. Paxton pleaded not guilty yesterday to 20 articles of impeachment. In May, the Republican-led Texas House voted 121 to 23 to impeach Paxton. It's the first impeachment proceeding in Texas in nearly 50 years and only the third in the state's history. The chair of the House Investigating Committee urged the Senate to have the courage to convict Paxton. Paxton's defense attorney, Tony Busby, countered by saying he was confident that both parties would realize there is nothing to the case. The impeachment was triggered by accusations from four of Paxton's former staff members. They alleged Paxton used his leverage to benefit a real estate agent, and after they reported it to them the, to the FBI, he fired them. Lawmakers conducted an investigation which led to the adoption of 20 articles of impeachment. The prosecution needs a two-thirds vote from the Republican-led Senate to permanently remove Paxton from office. If convicted, Paxton could be barred from holding any elected office in Texas again. Paxton has, laid the, has labeled the impeachment as politically motivated and maintains his innocence. A federal judge has restored enforcement of part of Georgia's law banning hormone replacement for minors. U.S. District Judge Sarah Girati temporarily blocked the key provision of the law from taking effect two weeks ago, more than a month after it took effect. But she said yesterday she would unblock it by putting her preliminary injunction on hold. The law prohibits patients under 18 from receiving cross-sex hormone procedures. At least 20 states have made similar laws in recent years. Special elections in Rhode Island and Utah are in the spotlight. Former White House aide Gabe Amo has won the Democratic special election primary for Rhode Island's 1st District. 
He is heavily favored to keep this seat in Democratic hands and succeed former Democratic Representative David Cicilline, who resigned in May to lead the Rhode Island Foundation. Utah voters are also deciding the fall matchup for a U.S. House seat. There's a special election in the 2nd District to succeed GOP Representative Chris Stewart. Stewart is expected to vacate his seat on September 15th. He announced in June that he would be departing Congress, citing his wife's health concerns. Neither seat is expected to change party hands in November, given the partisan leans of each district. Rhode Island's general election is set for November 7th, while the general election in Utah will take place on November 21st. Another attempted smash-and-grab robbery at yet another Southern California jewelry store, but this time the store owners fended the thief off with a bat. NTD's Christina Corona has more on the story. We're here in Almani where an attempted smash and grab robbery took place at Mesa Jewelry behind me, where the owners and employees decided to fight back. Surveillance footage shows the masked suspect walking down Almani's Main Street Saturday, carrying an empty box as he bear sprays a man sitting outside of Mesa's jewelry store. An employee tells us she was helping a customer when the suspect stepped into the store. We were very scared at that moment because he had a hammer on his hand and um, we didn't notice that he had pepper spray also on the other hand. So when my dad and my brother were like trying to like to stop him and then um, he pepper spray everyone on the ice. So then my dad and my brother started hitting him because he did that, you know. Footage from at SGV's Instagram account shows the owners beating the would-be thief with sticks and fists as he's wrestling out of the store and losing his shirt in the process. And the last words that he told my brother was like, I'm going to come back for you guys and kill all of you guys. So we're pretty scared, you know, like, like him to come back and, them, and to hurt us, the family. She says they will first have to replace the showcase and doors that will cost them roughly ten to $15,000. Lieutenant Cho from the Almani Police Department tells us what charges the suspect would receive. So he's looking at uh, robbery, and in this case, robbery is when you take something using force or fear. And in this case, he used bear spray to overcome the uh, man sitting in front of the jewelry store and the employees inside. And those carry hefty fines depending on his background, any priors uh, he may have. But this is obviously getting a lot of publicity, so what happens in court might be heavily influenced on public opinion. With smash-and-grab robberies happening more frequently, Lieutenant Cho tells us about owners' rights and advice to give other businesses to protect them during a robbery. Find out what kind of surveillance equipment might be suitable for your type of business. Find out what other businesses are doing to uh, protect their businesses. And read up on local laws to find out what you can do to enhance security. No serious injuries occurred during the robbery, and the Almani Police Department says the incident is still under investigation and no arrests have been made. Christina Corona, NTD News, Almani. Firefighters are often called upon to make sacrifices in the line of duty. One Washington State fire captain faced a particularly significant loss. While fighting the Gray Fire near Spokane, saving others' homes, this firefighter's house nearby burned to the ground. Once the front of the fire had moved, uh, there was a, a big wind shift. It was at that point that I realized it was heading towards the area of my house. Of course, you know, I couldn't think about that. We had a lot of work to do. 
After saving others' houses, he finally made it to what was once his home. I saw that my uh, outbuildings were on, on the ground and my truck was just a hole and then the house, all there was left was the, pretty much the metal on the roof, but, uh, but everything was on the ground. Despite his personal losses, Captain Hughes is happy his department saved many other places from the blaze that consumed around 10,000 acres. Um, again, that seeing my house wasn't the primary objective. It was to save as many as we could, and we did. We saved, you know, that I can count uh, six, but we, we did lose one. Hughes and his wife have since signed a lease on a 600-square-foot, one-bed, one-bath apartment, and they're moving in next week. Um, I joke with my wife and I tell her that we're kind of like 20-year-old newlyweds. You know, we're just, just starting out. And, and, you know, starting out, is, that's not the big issue. The, the, the sad part is losing all the things that you can't replace. Wow, that really is an act of selflessness. Yeah, that sacrifice and being able to stay focused right. and ignore that thought in the back of your head that yeah. your house is burning, wow. Because firefighters have to be focused in the yeah, line of work exactly. that they do. Well, coming up after the break, Goldman Sachs lowering chances of a recession in the U.S. What's the new figure and why is the company so confident about the economy? We hear more from Entity Business host Don Ma. Shark attacks. We've heard about them many times this summer, but how worried should we be and how should we avoid them while at the beach? We speak with an expert, so stay tuned. It's good to have you back with us. Goldman Sachs is lowering the chances of a recession in the U.S. Some good news. It's increasingly confident the U.S. economy will see a soft landing. Here to discuss this is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, it's great to see you. Yeah, good morning, Kevin. So first, what is a soft landing anyway? So that means uh, a mild uh, downturn, perhaps not even a recession. Um, yeah, something like that. Okay, so that's, that's a little bit of a better alternative here. So now, what's Goldman Sachs saying about the probability of this recession right now in the U.S.? So in a research report uh, that it published last night, the company, the company actually said that there's just a 15% chance that uh, we're going to see a recession in the next 12 months. Um, now, this is much lower than before because earlier this year, uh, the bank estimated more than one out of three chance uh, that the country would see an economic downturn. Um, and let me just point out that this new estimate of 15% is basically in line with the historical average chance of a recession on any given year, Kevin. Okay, so 15%, that's what we're working with. I mean, I just, when I'm walking outside in the street, I see people buying stuff. It's just like normal. So what's all this, what's all this talk of recession about? Yeah, we've been talking about a recession since last year, right? Because the Federal Reserve has increased interest rates um, at an unprecedented pace uh, for in the past uh, few decades, actually. So every time the Fed has increased interest rates like this, um, we've seen a recession. And that's why a lot of uh, companies, uh, including Goldman Sachs and, and other forecasters, have been forecasting a recession for a very long time. But now we're seeing economic data that's pointing to perhaps uh, 
um, a better outlook for the economy. So that's one of the reasons why uh, Goldman Sachs is seeing uh, less of a chance of a recession. And we can go into the data points that Goldman pointed out. That's interesting. So how is Goldman Sachs so confident that we won't see a recession? Yeah. Um, it, it actually pointed to solid job growth and uh, rising inflation-adjusted wages. Uh, and this wage growth could allow disposable income to increase starting next year. So in, in other words, paychecks uh, will grow faster than prices, and uh, it's going to give consumers more spending power. And that's, uh, that's important, Kevin, because the U.S. is a very consumption-driven economy. So whether or not consumers have disposable income is, is basically everything. But, you know, I, I also have to point out that Goldman Sachs is indeed a bit more optimistic than other forecasters, uh, other forecasts as well. So we have to keep that in mind. Don, anything else for us? Any other headlines? Yeah, sure. Um, an update on the ongoing actors and writer strikes. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery predicts a revenue loss of up to $500 million this year. That's due to the halt in production of most shows and movies. The company says it can't foresee when the strikes might end, but it assumes the effects will last throughout the year. Um, and meanwhile, another dispute, uh, telecom giant Verizon agreed to a settlement of $4 million. The DOJ says the company's business network services unit failed to comply with cybersecurity standards while servicing federal agencies. Verizon disclosed the potential hazard voluntarily in 2020, and it said that it never resulted in any data breach. And a mass uh, recall of over 50 million airbag inflators. Um, the U.S. auto safety regulator says the inflators could explode and hold dangerous metal fragments. They were made by the automotive suppliers ARC and Delphini. The NHTSA issued a voluntary recall in, in May of this year, but it was rejected by the ARC. The agency has scheduled a public meeting for October 5th in a rare move to force a court-ordered uh, court recall. Uh, but other than that, uh, that's all from me this morning. Wow, those airbags, they can be pretty dangerous. You know, we got to get those fixed. Don Ma, host of Entity Business, thank you. Yeah, for sure. It could definitely be even more dangerous for toddlers or young children sitting in the front seat. That Thank you so much. That is a good point. Thanks, Don. And shark attacks. We've heard about them many times this summer, but how worried should we be? And how should we avoid them while at the beach? Entity's Andrew Thomas spoke with an expert at the South Fork Natural History Museum, which has been conducting shark research since 2018. Frank Quevedo is the executive director of South Fork Natural History Museum. He says they've gathered valuable data on sharks, and educating the public about the misunderstood creatures is a top priority. Long Island has experienced some shark encounters in recent years, but Quevedo says the run-ins often get mischaracterized. These incidents that happen with humans here on Long Island are not shark attacks. You know, if these were shark attacks, people would be either dying or losing limbs or bleeding to death. These are shark encounters, or if you want to call it shark interactions. It's also crucial for swimmers to realize the big picture. They're land mammals in a marine environment. Once you, once you jump in the water, you take an inherent risk of becoming part of the food chain in the ocean. That's not our habitat. You know, that's the shark's habitat. Iconic movies like Steven Spielberg's 1975 hit Jaws have created a culture of fear. But the chances of getting attacked by a shark are slim to none. 
the odds of getting killed, getting bitten, getting killed by a shark is one in four and a half million. All right. So when you leave your house and you jump in your car on your way to the ocean, you take an inherent risk of getting into a car accident and dying from a car accident. The odds of dying in a car accident on your way to the beach is one in 85. Understanding that humans aren't on the menu may also calm some nerves. I think the, the most important misconception is that sharks are looking to eat people, and they're not. That is not their food source. They've evolved thousands of years, if not millions of years, to feed on specific prey, and that is fish and other marine mammals. But that doesn't mean swimmers shouldn't be vigilant. Don't swim when you see lots of birds feeding. Wait until they pass to go in. Try not to swim during dawn, dusk, or at night. That's when sharks have a tactical advantage over their prey. And avoid wearing jewelry. Light reflects off it and can attract sharks. And if you do encounter a shark, stay calm. If they're in deeper water where they can't get out, the best thing to do is hit it on its nose or poke it in its eye. It'll, it'll swim away. Um, that hasn't happened yet here, but if it does, that, that, those are the rules and the best ways Common shark species off the coast of Long Island include great whites, thresher sharks, hammerheads, makos, and blue sharks. Sand tiger sharks, sandbar sharks, spinner sharks, and black tip sharks tend to be closer to shore. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Some really good tips. And I do have to say, I saw a couple of videos where not quite punching the shark in the nose, but when you stroke its nose, it kind of just swims away. I wonder why that is. Wow. Well, yeah. You don't want to make too close of friends with it. <laughs> good point. Not trying to, really. <laughs> so we're going to go to break now. Beauty is goodness within and a sense of righteousness. A PhD student tells us what brought her from academia to the NTD beauty pageant. So stay tuned for more on that story. Welcome back. A devoted doctoral student, now one of the top 40 in the NTD International Chinese Beauty Pageant. What brought this young researcher to the stage and what's her understanding of beauty? Let's hear the story of Sherry Ning. My name is Sherry Ning. I'm originally from Qingdao, China. I'm currently at Northwestern University. I'm a PhD student in communication science and disorders. In Chinese, the word beauty, it doesn't just mean pretty. It also means the quality of being good. So I think to be good on the inside would definitely reflect on your outside, would enhance your beauty. My parents wanted to teach me about traditional Chinese culture as I was growing up. I would hear about and read about all of these stories of women in Chinese history that were both very gentle and soft, but also some of them were very talented, very knowledgeable, and others were brave. For example, Mulan, she had to sacrifice her own prior life as a girl in order to I think fulfill righteousness to do what's right for the country and for her family. I also see righteousness in modern day China as well. 
We all know there is a lot of unjust. There are a lot of really bad things happening in the world and especially in China. There is religious persecution. There is no freedom, no human rights. My mom very unfortunately accidentally conceived a second child and my parents made the decision to abort that child. But that decision has caused my mom to have a lot of health problems and mental health. Her mental well-being was also suffering. One of her colleagues introduced Falun Dafa to her and immediately after reading the book and starting to practice, she experienced a lot of benefits. All of her health problems, previous health problems were gone and she was able to feel happy again. The persecution started in 1999 and I would feel so bad about knowing that Falun Gong is good and not being able to tell other people about it and to hear all of those lies told about Falun Gong both on TV and in school. When the persecution began, practitioners around China started to produce flyers and brochures containing details of the persecution of how practitioners are beaten to death or tortured in prisons. I thought about what kind of opportunity this platform would provide for me to talk about all the persecution on Falun Dafa and about all of those unjust things happening in the world and I just couldn't let this opportunity pass. The Miss NTD Grand Final takes place at the end of this month at the SUNY Performing Arts Center. To watch it live, get a ticket at MissNTD.org. That's really exciting. That's the first contestants we're allowed to meet, so. Yeah, a little preview. Exactly. All right, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning@ntd.com. Write us with some feedback if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.